This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. I want to start this morning by asking you all a question. And do uh, we have any horticulturalists here this morning? Anybody? No, horticulturalists? Smart people with plants? <laughs> okay, good. So I'm not going to get busted on this one. So here's the question. You've got a tree standing in front of you. How can you tell if that tree is an apple tree or not? If it has apples or not, by its fruit, that's right. If it does the thing that it's intended to do, if it produces the thing it's intended to produce. And the, the apple is like the primary trait of the apple tree, right? It is visible, it is obvious, it is easy to see. You guys did good with that. So here's the second one. How can you tell if a tree is an orange tree or not? If it has oranges on it or not, that's right. Third one. I think you're going to get this one. How can you tell if a tree is an olive tree or not? If it has all, Few of you answered that one than the orange tree. You were much more confident in the orange tree than the olive tree. Did some of you not think olives grew on trees? It's okay. It's okay. That's what we're here for. Olives, by the way, uh, one of the four basic uh, charcuterie board food groups in my mind. We have bread, specifically like a good French baguette. We have meat, specifically like a very finely sliced prosciutto. We have cheeses, hard and soft, and we have olives. Those are the traits of a charcuterie board. That's how you can tell it's a charcuterie board. If it doesn't have those, it is just a cutting board with food on it. So you guys are doing really good. You're, you're kind of like two and a half out of three right now. So here's a new question. How are we as Christians, right, as followers of Jesus, how are we to be identified? What are our traits, our fruit, exactly. Very same answer. Jason, you're killing it today. Well, someone behind you said it? Awkward. You guys are killing it today. No, it's by our fruit. And Paul refers to this fruit, doesn't he, in, in Galatians 5 in, that we looked at in our series, What Makes Us Family, the, the Fruit of the Spirit. And, and his description, this listing, they're not of things you need to be doing. Remember we talked about that? No, these are things that we are becoming, right? The fruit of the Spirit, they are character traits, traits that I think we all desire to portray, traits that the Holy Spirit is forming within us, forming us into the image of Christ, growing to be more and more like Jesus who perfectly portrayed each and every one of these traits. And when we looked at this, remember we said that it was, it was the fruit of the Spirit, not fruits, right? It was singular, not plural. And that's because the Spirit is forming each and every one of these traits in each and every follower of Jesus. It is one big bowl of fruit salad. Amen? Amen. And so we're going to begin our summer by looking at each one of these traits over the course of these next few weeks. And we're going to begin by looking at what might be the most important uh, fruit, the most important of these traits, the strawberry of the fruit salad, if you will, and that is love. And what better place to see this fruit than in the great love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. And so if you haven't already, go ahead and open in your Bibles to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 13 there. And what the Apostle Paul is going to show us in this letter that he wrote to the churches in, in Corinth, he's going to show us three aspects of love. We are going to see first the necessity of love, we are going to see the traits of love, and then we're going to see the eternal nature of love. And so number one, we're going to see the necessity of love. We're going to see why it is that love is so important. And so look down here with me. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, verses 1 through 3, he writes, 
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I'm sure we've all heard at least part of this chapter uh, read at a a wedding at some point. But yet this passage has absolutely nothing to do with a wedding. right? It wasn't written to a husband and wife being united in marriage. This letter was written to a church that was divided. And the church in Corinth, as you look at the entirety of this letter, it may have more closely resembled the 21st century Western evangelical church culture more than any other that Paul wrote to because of how incredibly inward-focused it had become and how individually focused it had become. And as you look through the letter, you see that they were incredibly focused on things like their social status, their sexuality, and their spirituality, and what these things, what they said about them and what they did for them. And that was very true of the spiritual gifts. They had become a sign of of spiritual status, if you will, claiming that only those with certain gifts, specifically the gift of, of speaking in tongues, were truly filled with the Holy Spirit. The gifts, right, what they were doing became the defining trait of Christians and followers of Jesus rather than the fruit and who they were becoming. And unfortunately, this is a situation that has continued on for some 2,000 years to this very day, claiming that only those with certain gifts are truly filled with the Spirit. And so Paul, he confronts this misunderstanding of the spiritual gifts in this section here in chapters 12 through 14, right? A a section we looked at a few years ago in our series, Built Up by the Spirit. And he, he does this by addressing the importance of the unity of the body and the diversity within the body. Right? We are united together as individual members of one body, uh, similar to how in Galatians he talked about us being members of one family, and yet there is great diversity within the members within this body, each unique and different, right? uniquely gifted by the Spirit to fulfill a different function within the body, yet each function vital to the health of the overall body. And unlike the fruit of the Spirit, there is no one person with every gift, and there's no one gift every person has, right? The, The diversity of God's gifting within the body, it was to foster greater unity within the body, greater dependence on one another. Because what he shows us here in these chapters is that the spiritual gifts, they weren't they weren't about status, they were about service. Right? The gifts, they're not about you, they're about what they do for others, about building up the body of Christ, building up the church and bringing glory to God. And so what Paul is saying in these opening three verses here is that to take these spiritual gifts, to use our gifts of tongues, of prophecy, to use the gifts of the Spirit apart from the fruit of the Spirit, it does absolutely no good for anyone whatsoever. It is at best a distraction, as he goes on to show in chapter 14, and at worst, destructive. And so in verse 1, for example, he shows that regardless of your spiritual gifting, even if you're able to speak in tongues, even even if you can speak this celestial, heavenly language of the angels, but have not love as you speak, as you use your gifts, he says, 
You are nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He doesn't say that about your gift. He says that about you. He says that about us, the person. And so think about that for a moment. If what you say to others, even if true, if what you say to others is not spoken in love and spoken out of love for others, not only is what you say of no value and nothing but noise, Paul is saying here you are of no value and nothing but noise. That is the necessity of love. And he goes on in verse 2 to show us that regardless of your spiritual maturity, wherever you are at in your walk with Christ, regardless of your, your, your understanding of God's word, your theological knowledge, your seminary degree, your ministry experience, even faith so great that you can say to a mountain, move from here to there, as Jesus said, and it'll move, but you have not love. He's like, your faith, your maturity, your knowledge, your understanding, not only is any of that not worth anything, he says, you are nothing. And then if we didn't get his point after two of them, he says one more time in verse three, he says, regardless of how much you sacrifice and how much you give up, even giving away everything you have like Jesus called the young rich ruler to do, even if you are a martyr burned at the stake for your faith, if your motive is not love for others and what that might do for others rather than what it might do for you, right, making you right with God, getting you into heaven, it is of no value. It does no one any good. You gain absolutely nothing with sacrifice that is not done out of love. He's saying what we say, what we know, what we give up, none of it is of any value. None of it does anyone any good if not done in love and out of love for others. He's saying here that love is the necessary why behind each and every what. We see this throughout Scripture, don't we? John 13, Jesus, he gave us a new commandment. He's like, Jesus was kind of a big idea guy. He's like, hey, you read this book. You took nothing else away. Can you take this one thing away? That you love one another. That's it. Let's make sure we grasp that, that you love one another. And he's like, and if you can remember more, if you're still taking notes, write this down. How? He says, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And then he says that it is by our love for one another that the world, that everyone will know that we are his followers, that we will be recognized as his disciples by the fruit of the Spirit, not the gifting of the Spirit. And so for us, what that means is that our doing should flow out of our being, shouldn't it? What we are doing should flow out of who it is that we are becoming. The way that the Spirit is working through you and gifting you should be an outpouring of how the Spirit is working in you and forming you and growing you. Love is the necessary why behind each and every what and each and every word. That's the necessity of love. In the second group, he shows us the traits of love. He shows us what love looks like. And he gives us 15 traits here. Look with me here in verses 4 through 7. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And that is poetic. That is beautiful, isn't it? Kind of reads like a Hallmark card. 
I, uh, when I read this passage at weddings, I joke about how we could have just skipped premarital counseling, just read this, and we'd be good, wouldn't we? I think it's important to see this, this passage, this, this section here, it's not a description of the way uh, others should love you. It's not a litmus test to offer a report card of how others love you. No, this is a description of the way God loves us, isn't it? It's a description of the way God loves us, not because of who we are or anything that we've done, but because of who God is. And 1 John 4 says that, that love is from God. It, it originates from Him. He is the, the source of love because God is love. It is who He is, not just what He does. And it says that God's love, it was, it was made manifest. It was demonstrated. It was made visible through the sending of His only Son into the world, the sending of, of, of Jesus, the incarnate, eternal Word of God. And this was done not because we loved God, but because he loved us. It wasn't because anything we've done is deserving of his love. And in fact, the truth is our sin is deserving of death. It's deserving of his wrath. No, this was done because of his love. And because he is love, because of his love, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to take on our sins and to die for our sins. Why? So that we might live through him. And what we see is that our love for others, it ought to look like God's love for us, shouldn't it? Right? We, we, we respond to God's love by reflecting God's love. As we saw this morning for, for one another, for our neighbor, as Jesus called us in Matthew 22, or even for our enemy, as he did in Matthew 5. Right? Nobody is excluded from the love we are called to share because nobody is excluded from the love God shares. But you notice in, in the descriptions of, of love, um, he, he didn't describe them with adjectives about how love feels, did he? No, he used verbs to describe what it is that love does. Because love, it's not just an emotion you feel. It is a decision that you make and an action that we take. You don't just feel love for others. You express love. You choose to love. And so this, you guys know, you know my love for Nicholas Sparks novels, right? If not, you do now. This is no Nicholas Sparks novel, right? This is no lifetime rom-com that you don't want to acknowledge that you watched. No, the love that God's describing here, it is a selfless, sacrificial love that is empty of self and focused on others. And so I want us to go back through and I want us to look at each of these traits. And we're going to do that by asking some reflective questions. I'm going to ask a question and I want you to think about this trait. And as you do, do one thing for me. We can be prone to answer questions like this for others. Oh, that, 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 does, that describes them. No, this is a, we get to be a little selfish right now. Um, reflect on these questions about you and how you love and treat others. And so here's the first one. He begins saying love is patient. And so the first question I want you to ask yourself is this. Am I easily frustrated by others? And all God's people said, yeah. Like, we're not patient people, are we? We're not. Uh, we get easily frustrated by a long line at the grocery store. How many of y'all have ever been in like five different lines in one grocery store trip because you keep thinking the other one is going to be faster? You do the same on the Kennedy when you get stopped in traffic. Um, 
You might, for example, be a little frustrated and not very patient when you're waiting 10 minutes at a railroad crossing for a train that never came, making you 10 minutes late to pick up your poor son from track practice. Just a hypothetical. (laughs) Sorry, Sean. Or uh, last night I went to go pick up a pizza at, uh, at Tortorisi's just around the corner. That's kind of become our pizza place. And um, there was a guy there waiting in line who was visibly frustrated with others, and I put myself in the others. Tortorisi's has a way in which the lines work. You, you go in and there's this curved line, and then you come up to the counter from the side to check in and say, oh, is my pizza ready? And then once that's done, you stand in the back. And so I walked in, and there's a, two, there's a person here waiting in the line to the side. I got in line behind him, and there's a couple people back here. The guy, the guy comes up from the counter, and the next guy comes up to get his pizza, and one of these guys waits and says, hey, bro, I'm next, bro. He was not patiently waiting for his pizza. The story's not done. We're going to come back to that pizza guy. But not only do we get, we get, sit, we get frustrated with situations, we get frustrated with people, and I think we mostly get frustrated with people when they fail to live up to our expectations of them, don't they? And it's easy to give up on them. It's easy to give up on when we don't think they're doing enough, when we don't think they're doing good enough, when we don't think they're doing it fast enough, when they're not growing, they're not progressing, they're not learning. We're just going to cut bait and run. We're going to leave them behind. And as impatient of people as we are, we're not only impatient with others, we're also incredibly impatient with ourselves, aren't we? I think we're probably the most frustrated and least patient with our own growth our spiritual growth, our growth in our job, our our growth in school, whatever the case may be, our growth as as parents, whatever. Because we think we should be further along by now. We think we should be further along, so then we start to think that we're a failure. Even if none of you in the room felt that, I know I felt that. And rather than being easily frustrated and giving up on others, what God is calling us to do here is to wait patiently and not give up on others because he never once gave up on us, did he? God hasn't given up on you. I don't care how far you've run or what you have done. God hasn't given up on you. And so we're not called to wait passively. We're called to wait actively. Paul, he writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak. And he ends this list by saying, and be patient with them all as you do this. And you know, we, we like to be helpful as we open God's word. Here's something. The most practical way to patiently wait with one another, not wait on one another, not wait for one another, but wait with one another, it's to pray, isn't it? And we have a phrase here, don't just say you'll pray, stop and pray. In those moments when you are most frustrated with someone and your patience has run thin, those are the moments to get on our knees and pray because love is patient. Number two, he says love is kind. And so ask yourself this question. Do I try to understand those who I disagree with? Do I try to understand those I disagree with? There's no shortage of things we disagree on. Um, the guy in line at the pizza shop, he very much disagreed on the way that the line works at Tortorisi's. He made that evident. But it's easy to treat those that we disagree with as an enemy, isn't it? We treat the other as an outsider. And when we disagree, though, I want you to ask yourself, when, when you disagree with someone, are, are, are we trying to understand Are we trying to understand the why behind the what? Why they feel the way they feel? Why they believe what they believe? Or are we simply assuming and judging? 
Because see, what the Spirit is doing within us is forming and growing a very tender and empathetic heart within us that seeks to understand what others are feeling and facing, seeing the situation through their own eyes, listening to their story, learning their story, and loving them in and through their story. Love is kind, and I think to be kind more than anything is to withhold what harms and to give what heals, isn't it? And nothing heals like the love of Jesus, does it? Nothing. And so what do we do? As followers of Jesus, as people who should be known by our love, we point people to Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life by loving like Jesus, amen? By coming alongside and putting our arm around, not wagging our finger in their face because love is kind. Number three, love does not envy And so ask yourself this, am I jealous of the success of others? Yeah, a little bit. It's easy, though, to be jealous, isn't it? It's like God gave us a list of 10 things early on in the Bible, and he kind of put this one in there, kind of like there right at the end to make sure we remembered it at the end. We're jealous of the things others have, their job, their degree, their house, their health. We're jealous of the lives others live. We're jealous of those that others have in their lives that we might not But what he's calling us to do here is rather than constantly comparing ourselves to others is to love them by celebrating the success of others because love does not envy. Number four, how about this one? Love does not boast. And so ask yourself this, do I brag about my own accomplishments? Like this is hard for a lot of us, isn't it? And you know that when when a pastor says this is hard for a lot of us, what he means is this is hard for me, and I hope it's also hard for someone else so I'm not alone up here. Like I'm an Enneagram 3, so basically what that means is if I do something, I A, want to do it well, and B, I want you to know that I did it well. And so, for example, have I told you guys that I graduated Friday from TED's? I, I wasn't sure if I did. So, so graduation was Friday, and I got my, my master's degree, and uh, so I can check that new box on applications. I don't just have some postgraduate, I have actual graduate degree. And uh, oh, also, I don't know if you noticed, I graduated summa cum laude, which uh, is just a fancy name for highest distinction, right? I got a, I got a 3.96, I got that, I got an A- minus in preaching. Dr. Sharp was one of my favorite instructors, but I got an A- minus in preaching. So what I just did for you is I gave you what we in preaching class learned was called an, an illustration, where we illustrate the text with a story of how love is not meant to be boasting. Don't do what I just did. That said, we are going to celebrate the success of others, and a few of us are getting together for a party this afternoon. Boasting, though, when we actually reflect on this, you know where it stems from? It originates from our own insecurity, doesn't it? Finding our identity in what it is that we have done rather than what Christ has done. Finding our, other, our identity in what we are doing rather than what the Spirit is forming us to be and who we are being. Love doesn't boast. Number five, love is not rude or arrogant. So you ask yourself this, do I, do I need to be right all the time? Am I one of those kind of people? 
You see, our insecurity, it also leads us to, in some sense, building up ourselves by tearing others down. And so ask yourself this, do you, do you ever just need to tell it like it is? Do you, do you always need to tell people when they're wrong so that you can be right? Right, so the pizza guy, let's go back to the pizza story. We're not done with that story yet. It's an illustration that keeps on giving. So the guy in front of me goes after he gets yelled at, and then that guy gets up and he gets his pizza, and there's still a woman waiting back here who I still think is checked in and waiting on her pizza. And so after he gets his, I go up and I say, you know, pizza for, uh, for Jill Hare. And uh, as the guy is at the door, she's in front of you, brah. Are we in San Diego or what? Hang loose, dude. But he needed to make sure that I was wrong. I wanted to tell him so very badly, y'all don't know how to wait in line at Tortorisi's, but I kept my mouth shut primarily because I was wearing a redemption t-shirt. <laughs> and I was like, please don't botch this illustration in the middle of it before you even get to preach it. Gee, we're oversensitive. Right? Whenever someone uh, uh, critiques you or, or maybe criticizes something you say, are you prone to take that as a personal attack on yourself? Like, for some reason, this whole pizza thing, like, I'm a bad, oh, I was kind of a bad person. It was like a woman, after all. I should have just, like, asked. So when you're at Tortorisi's and people don't know the line, the little sidebar, just ask, oh, I'm sorry, have you already checked in? No. Okay, is it okay if I go ahead and go? And if they say, oh, no, I haven't, say, oh, I'm so sorry, you were here before me. Lots of practical tips, even of how to pick up your pizza at Tortorisi's. No, I'm not being sponsored by Tortorisi's today. But we got a short fuse, don't we, a lot of times? And you ever catch yourself, does it feel like people are having to walk on eggshells around you all the time? Walking on eggshells afraid that the slightest thing that they might say or do wrong is going to set you off? Are you always walking around assuming that people are assuming the worst of you? But love is not irritable. Number eight, love is not resentful. And so ask yourself this, do I easily hold on to grudges? I do. I hold on to grudges easily. I like to refer to this one as keeping score. Any, uh, you guys ever play Clue, the board game Clue? So, you know, when you're playing Clue and you see mm, Colonel Mustard walked into the library carrying a lead pipe. That's interesting. I better write that down. I might need that later. I might be able to pull that back out. But that's what we do in life. And so whenever someone does something wrong, do you, do you, do you find yourself taking out your scorecard, making a little note? little reminder for later, keeping score of, because uh, I might need that later. You know, keeping score of everything they said, of everything they've done, how they've messed up, how they let you down, how they've wronged you, how they've hurt you, and then just waiting ever so patiently with that scorecard in your back pocket for just the right time to bring it back up and to remind them, using what they've said and what they've done as ammunition to fire back at them and to retaliate and to shame them. And hear me. Even if you've been legitimately wronged, our response may also be wrong and resentful, can it? But love is not resentful. Number nine, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And so ask yourself this, do I in any way enjoy other people's misfortunes? Do I in any way enjoy other people's misfortunes? You ever find yourself like on the edge of your seat just waiting for someone you disagree with, someone on the other side, so to speak, to, to slip up so you can like jump on that social media bandwagon and celebrate their failure? You ever hear a, a story in the news or, or read a post on social media of someone struggling and failing, falling 
on hard times, maybe even someone you know, someone who may have wronged you in the past and say to yourself, they had it coming. See, we are prone to celebrate by rejoicing at wrongdoing with further wrongdoing, whether that is verbal or physical violence and vengeance. But it's not always active. Sometimes it is much more passive in how we go about this. Because I think we're also prone to silently and passively rejoice at wrongdoing by simply remaining silent while others are suffering and ignoring injustice and oppression of others rather than acting out and speaking out on their behalf. And so that's why when things like what happened yesterday in, in Buffalo happened, that's why we talk about them. And, and some are going to be prone to say, just preach the gospel. And my response to that is, I think that's exactly what we're doing, don't you think? Because I think Scripture is, is filled with commands for us to pursue truth and justice, both with our words and with our actions, right? It, Proverbs 31, it says to open your mouth and to judge righteously with your words, to defend the rights of the poor with your words, to defend the rights of the needy with your words, but not just with our words, but also with our actions. One of my favorites, Isaiah 117, it says, learn to do good, to be actively doing good. How? By seeking justice, correcting oppression, bringing justice to the fatherless, and pleading the widow's cause, just as an example. Right? God is calling us as his people to stand up and to speak up. Amen? To speak up on behalf of those without a voice. To stand up and defend the most vulnerable in our world. Micah 6.8 says, Has he not told you, old man, what is good? Like he's told us what's good. He says, what does the Lord require of you? It says, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Man, it sounds just like what Paul's been saying throughout this section, isn't it? And like there's another thing kind of going on in the world here right now. And so hear me say, this most definitely includes speaking up on behalf of an unborn child. Amen? But it also includes speaking up on behalf of the child who came here without a passport and needs some food to eat. And yet we're still not done because I think there's one more thing that we see in our world today. And that is that rejoicing with the truth, it also means not twisting the truth. It means not giving half-truths. And it means not suppressing the truth in the dark but bringing it out into the light no matter how uncomfortable and how inconvenient that might be. And that is true in our own individual lives with the sin that we hide in the dark. And that is true in our corporate lives as the church. And when the church has wronged others, it is our duty to bring that into the light, not shove it in the dark. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And number 10, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And so ask yourself this, do I believe the best about others? And I think even with today and what we talked about before the sermon, we could expand that to be, do I believe, do I believe the best about God? And he's not calling us here to be gullible and naive and to just pretend like there's nothing bad happened. Everything's going to be okay. I believe it's going to be okay. I hope it's going to be okay. I'm going to endure. It's all good. He's, he's, not, he's also not calling us to ignore wrongdoing or endlessly endure abuse. But he is calling us to, to persevere and to persevere in relationships by preserving 
relationships, persevering through the difficult times rather than turning and running away every time things get hard. He's calling us to assume the best of others and ask the hard questions of others rather than always assuming the worst and judging others. He's calling us to, to confront sin and to pray for repentance. And, and as we do this, like, hear me, sometimes boundaries need to be drawn, don't they? And sometimes people will need to be removed from relationship in, in order to protect our physical and emotional and spiritual well-being. And, and while that's true of all relationships, I think that, that becomes especially true of things like marriage and family, doesn't it? Doing everything we can to preserve marriages and to reunite broken families by creating a safe and secure environment that is free of fear, free of hurt and abuse. And yet some of you, I know, you have to be here this morning saying whatever. And like if you're at the end of your rope, you're ready to give up. You're like, Pastor Ash, I got no more prayers left to pray. I just want you to know that I'm praying for you, and I want you to know that the Holy Spirit is praying for you as well, and that Jesus is our great meteor and high priest is praying for you. Because that's what love, the love of God, always continually does, leading us to love like God, loving without limits. Now, chances are few of you made it through that list of 10 without marking a few of those. We probably all failed at, at each and every one of those at some point in our lives. I, I know I probably failed at more than I care to admit. Um, I didn't share every failing I had as an illustration this morning. It's probably why I got an A minus because I shared too many illustrations. I failed more often than I care to admit, more recently than I care to admit, and I'm venture to guess I'm not the only one. And I don't say that to shame or humiliate, but to challenge and encourage and just acknowledge. Let's not allow the world to redefine love that only God can define. And so when we fail at loving, what I need you to know is there is forgiveness. Amen? There is forgiveness when we fail, found in God's never-ending, relentless love for you. Love that one of our favorite songs says, it never fails, it never gives up, and it never runs out on you. Because God's love is eternal, isn't it? And that's what we see here at the close. We see the eternal nature of love. There is no closing credits on this movie of love. Look at me with verse 8 through 12. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. My love never ends. It is eternal. It endures throughout this life and this time on into eternity, beyond time, because love existed before time. It existed before creation, when all there was was God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living in perfect love. And it was that love that led to his creation of us. It was that love that led to his redemption of us. Love never ends, but that's not the case for the spiritual gifts. These things that many in the church in Corinth so highly prized, they were only temporary. 
One day, these gifts of the Spirit, they would cease. They would pass away. But when? Paul says right here, when the perfect comes, when Christ returns, when he restores all that is broken, when he rights all the wrongs, when he resurrects our dead bodies, and all of creation will once be not only good, but very good as it was in the very good beginning. At that time, the gifts will no longer be needed because they will serve their purpose in building up the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. But until that day, we live between the advents, don't we? After the resurrection of Christ and before his return. And during that time, I think what we know to be true and what God says here is we're, we're only ever going to know but a fraction of who God is and of his love for us. Because see, for a time, we're, we're unable to gaze directly into God's glory and holiness. Moses, like, he demanded, show me your glory. And God's like, y'all, you can't do that. I'm going to give you a glimpse, though, as I pass by. Just a taste of what is to come. And so we are only able to see but a glimpse of reflection as we look through a mirror, only seeing that which God has revealed to us, revealed to us in the, the living word of his son and in the written word of scripture. But even then, can we be honest that when we read this, we recognize that we only see and we only understand in part. There's some hard parts of this book, isn't there? While our faith grows and we mature with every step as we faithfully follow the way of Jesus on this journey of life, know that we will not reach full maturity in this life. Our speaking, our thinking, our understanding of God, it will be as a child in some sense. And yet Jesus called us to have the faith of a child, didn't he? But man, when Jesus returns, when Christ comes, when the perfect comes, we will know God in his love in full, it says. Just as we are fully known by God. And just as we are fully loved by God this very day. Love is eternal. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.